0: Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap issues and events pertinent to central Illinois. I'm WNBD News Director Cooper Banks. The ever-menacing plague of violence. It's a problem all across the country, particularly with gun violence. It's a problem here at home as well. And some local officials are putting support behind a new initiative aimed at approaching the problem from a public health standpoint. We heard Peoria City County Public Health Administrator Monica Hendrickson making the case for the program at this week's Peoria City Council meeting.
1: So I want to say this, you know, our council is a caring council. Every,
2: every member of our city council cares about our community, and
1: um, the vote did not reflect uncaring about our community by anyone, uh, by any measure, So I want to say that we didn't provide sufficient information, so we hope that tonight's presentation will provide more information and more opportunity for council to ask those questions. Okay? Take it away, Monica.
3: Uh, So good evening, Madam Mayor, uh, City Council members, uh, City Manager and leadership. Again, I'm Monica Hendrickson. I'm the Public Health Administrator for Peoria City County Health Department. With me is my colleague, Katie Endres, who is the Director of Epidemiology and Clinical Services at the Health Department. And then on the phone, as uh, Madam Mayor um, alluded to, is Mr. Brent Decker, the Chief Program Officer for Cure Violence Global. Thank you for inviting us to present on this evidence-based strategy. First, there needs to be an understanding that gun violence is a public health crisis. In Peoria County, homicide is the leading cause of death amongst our 15 to 24-year-old population and the second leading cause of death amongst our 25 to 34-year-olds. In 2019, the Peoria County Board of Health, within their goal of health equity, identified gun violence as a strategic health issue. This is fundamentally a shift on how we look at gun violence as a community. Rather than continuing to look at violence as an issue only for law enforcement or criminal justice to find solutions, or thinking of this as a moral issue about bad people doing bad things, pure violence is an approach that takes it on as a health issue based on risk factors, exposure, and transmission so that we can actually work to stop the spread of violence. As public health professionals, we often utilize this public health prevention pyramid to address a health concern. We recognize there is a need for multiple interventions at various stages to effectively improve health. Within this pyramid, you have your primary prevention, which is creating the groundwork for environmental controls and addressing social determinants of health, so violence doesn't actually emerge. In this tier, basic needs are met, a community is thriving, and we work on general community intervention. This is currently happening in the city of Peoria in a variety of ways. You have economic and workforce development, community development programs, school readiness, and housing initiatives. All of these are considered that primary prevention approach. The next tier, or secondary prevention, is early response and intervention, where you look at data to determine what are the risk factors associated with violence. This does not mean that these individuals participate in gun violence, but rather they're the highest risk based on their exposure. So these are individuals that are living in poverty, have seen a history of domestic violence, communities of high incarceration rates, and gang activity. Much of the grants that you're seeing coming through the state through the Reimagined Public Safety Act actually fall through that secondary prevention level. The final tertiary tier is long-term response, which is focused on the acute health event, specifically on the interruption of violence. The focus is to break the cycle of violence, and we call it a cycle of violence because sometimes the role of victim and assailant become very fluid and move back and forth, much like a disease or illness, and is considered a disease transmission. So here, the trauma of living in continuous violence creates an environment where people are more inclined to utilize violence. By using a public health comprehensive and holistic approach towards violence reduction, you need to have support at every single tier. Cure violence is a key intervention in that tertiary level. At that level, you have the highest acuity or severity of violence, but it's also where you need the most specialized care. The cure violence approach applies an evidence-based practice in which it looks to detect and interrupt, identify and change the thinking behaviors of the highest transmitters, and then work to change group norms is driven by local communities, with the staff recruited from the neighborhood. And this is really key in terms of how effective this program is. It is a very much localized approach. While the community as a whole works with Cure Violence Global, the staff, specifically the violence interrupters and the outreach workers, are recruited from the neighborhoods where they serve. So Cure Violence is based on a theory of change model, and there's three different avenues they focus on. The first is to detect and interrupt. Trained violence interrupters and outreach workers, again, who are hired locally, work to identify and mediate conflicts. They are separate from law enforcement and are considered highly credible amongst those high-risk transmitters. They prevent retaliation, mediate ongoing conflict, and keep conflicts cruel, all with the premise of stopping a violent event before it happens. The next avenue that Cure Violence focuses on is identify and treat. Trained outreach workers, use culturally appropriate and trauma-informed services to reduce risk. They communicate with those high-risk individuals and help them attain social services. They use their own trust capital to work and establish relationships in the neighborhood. Then they start communicating on how you can change your behaviors, talking about what the cost and consequences of violence are. And then lastly, they do intensive case management, all this to reduce the number of violent individuals. And then lastly, it is a focus on changing norms, where workers engage with the community to message that the residents and various groups are not supporting violence. They respond in their catchment areas to every shooting to have that singular voice, as well as to organize communities that either have existing or new programs to help prevent violence. And then lastly, to spread positive norms. So distribute events, uh, distribute materials, host events, to make sure a community recognizes that violence is not acceptable in that area. All of this creates that social pressure to stop violence. And these three streams lead to a reduction in violence. This is a fundamental shift towards thinking of this as a public health issue. This isn't about bad people committing senseless acts to be punished, but rather, these are individuals that have had learned behavior that it is a contagious process and we don't need to punish them, but rather to work towards interrupting and changing their behaviors. If as public health and healthcare professionals we use that old view or old language or vocabulary to talk to people that are obese or that smoke, we would be considered insensitive and inappropriate in terms of how we provide care. So let's not use that when we talk about violence reduction. I will now turn it over to Katie Endress, our Director of Epi and Clinical Services, to. review the evidence about
4: this approach. So Cure Violence has reduced shootings and killings between 30 and 70% in some of the hardest hit communities in the United States and Latin America. Initially implemented in Chicago under the name ceasefire, Cure Violence yielded between 41 and 73% reductions in shootings in five of the seven target neighborhoods. These findings were all attributable to the program as changes in comparison neighborhoods for the same outcome measures were insignificant. Additionally, retaliation killings stopped completely. When Baltimore replicated the ceasefire program under the name Safe Streets, large statistically significant reductions in homicides and non-fatal shootings were observed in three of the four target neighborhoods. Across all program sites in Baltimore, the intervention was responsible for 5.4 fewer homicides and 34.6 fewer non-fatal shootings. Further analysis of the Baltimore program revealed that participants benefit from connections made with outreach workers, with 80% of program participants reporting that their lives were better since joining Safe Streets, and 276 conflicts were mediated, preventing increased tension and further violence. A neighborhood known as Crown Heights in central Brooklyn replicated ceasefire under the name Save Our Streets in 2010 results showed a decrease of 6% in average monthly shooting rates while this was not statistically significant on its own when compared to three similar adjacent neighborhoods it revealed rates increase between 18 and 28 percent in these areas during the same time period this analysis made the decrease in crown height significant and suggests that gun violence was actually 20% lower than what it would have been had, been had trends been similar to those of the comparison neighborhoods. This program also measured police community relations, showing positive changes in police trust and willingness to call the police. North Philadelphia then replicated the ceasefire model in 2012. Each of the three target areas where the program was implemented experienced significant shooting reductions of 2.4 per month. So Benjamin Franklin coined the phrase an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And while a program such as Cure Violence will effectively be saving lives, it needs to be done with fidelity, true to its intent. And that's why it's important to consider the costs and the return on investment. An independent analysis done on the Cure Violence program over 10 years demonstrated that for every dollar spent, the program saved 33, and for every dollar invested by government, four dollars were saved. It could also be argued that tax dollars from every homicide prevented could be allocated to sustain the program, as a report published by the National Institute of Criminal Justice Reform calculated that each homicide in Stockton, California, cost taxpayers approximately $2.5 million between crime scene response, hospitals and rehabilitation, and criminal justice expenses.
0: The program cost roughly $25,000 in American Rescue Plan money for Peoria. Millions of Americans continue to watch closely as members of an investigative subcommittee in Congress present evidence suggesting very serious accusations against former President Donald Trump and others in connection with the January 6, 2021 U.S. Capitol attack. Members of the committee believe Trump and other close advisors led an effort to deceive the American public and their own supporters about the results of the 2020 presidential election, perhaps grift from them, and then attempt a failed coup January 6th to keep Trump in power. Democrats lead the committee, but chose a Republican and longtime Trump critic to deliver the synopsis of the case. For the summary, we'll turn back to Wyoming Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who opened the proceedings.
1: As you will see in the hearings to come, President Trump believed his supporters at the Capitol and, I quote, were doing what they should be doing. This is what he told his staff as they pleaded with him to call off the mob to instruct his supporters to leave. Over a series of hearings in the coming weeks, you will hear testimony live and on video from more than half a dozen former white house staff in the trump administration all of whom were in the west wing of the white house on january 6th you will hear testimony that quote the president did not really want to put anything out calling off the riot or asking his supporters to leave you will hear that president trump was yelling and, quote, really angry at advisors who told him he needed to be doing something more. And aware of the rioters' chance to hang Mike Pence, the president responded with this sentiment, quote, maybe our supporters have the right idea. Mike Pence, quote, deserves it. You will hear evidence that President Trump refused for hours to do what his staff, his family, and many of his other advisors begged him to do, immediately instruct his supporters to stand down and evacuate the Capitol. Tonight, you will see never-before-seen footage of the brutal attack on our Capitol, an attack that unfolded while a few blocks away, President Trump sat watching television in the dining room next to the Oval Office. You will hear audio from the brave police officers battling for their lives and ours, fighting to defend our democracy against a violent mob Donald Trump refused to call off. Tonight and in the weeks to come, you will see evidence of what motivated this violence, including directly from those who participated in this attack. You will see video of them explaining what caused them to do it. You will see their posts on social media, We will show you what they have said in federal court. On this point, there is no room for debate. Those who invaded our capital and battled law enforcement for hours were motivated by what President Trump had told them, that the election was stolen and that he was the rightful president. President Trump summoned the mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. You will also hear about plots to commit seditious conspiracy on January 6th, a crime defined in our laws as conspiring to overthrow, put down, or destroy by force the government of the United States, or to oppose by force the authority thereof. Multiple members of two groups, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, have been charged with this crime for their involvement in the events leading up to and on January 6th. Some have pled guilty. The attack on our Capitol was not a spontaneous riot. Intelligence available before January 6th identified plans to, quote, invade the Capitol, occupy the Capitol, and take other steps to halt Congress's count of electoral votes that day. In our hearings to come, we will identify elements of those plans and we will show specifically how a group of Proud Boys led a mob into the Capitol building on January 6th. Tonight, I am going to describe for you some of what our committee has learned and highlight initial findings you will see this month in our hearings. As you hear this, all Americans should keep in in mind this fact. On the morning of January 6th, President Donald Trump's intention was to remain President of the United States, despite the lawful outcome of the 2020 election and in violation of his constitutional obligation to relinquish power. Over multiple months, Donald Trump oversaw and coordinated a sophisticated seven-part plan to overturn the presidential election and prevent the transfer of presidential power. In our hearings, you will see evidence of each element of this plan. In our second hearing, you will see that Donald Trump and his advisors knew that he had in fact lost the election. But despite this, President Trump engaged in a massive effort to spread false and fraudulent information to convince huge portions of the US population that fraud had stolen the election from him. This was not true. Jason Miller was a senior Trump campaign spokesman. In this clip, Miller describes a call between the Trump campaign's internal data expert and President Trump a few days after the 2020 election.
5: I was in the Oval Office, um, and at some point in the conversation, Matt Ozkowski, who is the lead data person, was brought on, and I remember he delivered to the president pretty blunt terms uh, that he was going to lose.
6: And that was based, uh, Mr. Miller, on Matt and the data team's assessment of the sort of county-by-county, state-by-state results as reported? Correct.
1: The Trump campaign's general counsel, Matt Morgan, gave similar testimony. He explained that all of the fraud allegations and the campaign's other election arguments taken together and viewed in the best possible light for President Trump could still not change the outcome of the election. President Trump's Attorney General, Bill Barr, also told Donald Trump his election claims were wrong.
6: repeatedly uh, told the president in no uncertain terms uh, that uh, I did not see evidence of fraud uh, and uh, you know that would have affected the outcome uh, of the election. And frankly, a year and a half later, I haven't seen anything to to change my mind on that.
1: Attorney General Barr also told President Trump that his allegations about Dominion voting machines were groundless.
6: I saw absolutely zero basis for the allegations, but they were made in such a sensational way that they obviously were influencing a lot of people, uh, members of the public. That there was this systemic corruption in the system and that their votes didn't count and that these machines controlled by somebody else were actually determining it, which was complete nonsense. And it was being laid out there and I told them that it was, that it was, uh, crazy stuff and they were wasting their time on that. And, uh, it was doing a great, grave disservice to the country.
1: But President Trump persisted, repeating the false Dominion allegations in public at least a dozen more times, even after his attorney general told him they were, quote, complete nonsense. Many of President Trump's White House staff also recognized that the evidence did not support the claims President Trump was making. This is the president's daughter commenting on Bill Barr's statement that the department found no fraud sufficient to overturn the election.
6: How did that affect your perspective about the election when Attorney General Barr made that statement?
4: It affected my perspective. Um, I respect Attorney General Barr. Um, So I accepted what he was saying.
1: As you will hear on Monday, the president had every right to litigate his campaign claims, but he ultimately lost more than 60 cases in state and federal courts. As you will see in great detail in our hearings, President Trump ignored the rulings of our nation's courts. He ignored his own campaign leadership, his White House staff, many Republican state officials. He ignored the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security. President Trump invested millions of dollars of campaign funds purposely spreading false information, running ads he knew were false and convincing millions of Americans that the election was corrupt and that he was the true president. As you will see, this misinformation campaign provoked the violence on January
0: 6th. Illinois Democratic Senate leader Dick Durbin, offering a dose of history in his review of the investigation by the January 6th subcommittee in Congress, issued comments on the Senate floor earlier this week. Take a listen.
7: Hard to believe it was 50 years ago this week. 50 years ago, when five men were caught breaking into the offices of the Democratic National Committee here in Washington. Two years after that, the so-called Watergate break-in and the cover-up by the Nixon White House, it brought down the President. For nearly a half a century, the Watergate scandal really ranked as America's greatest constitutional test since the Civil War. Then came January 6, 2021. An angry mob, summoned by a defeated president, attacked this Capitol building, attacked this chamber. And those of us who were in it knew it was an attempt to overthrow an election, an election which Donald Trump lost but never admitted. How did we respond? Well, the proposal was made, the right proposal, to create a bipartisan commission to investigate what happened on January 6, 2021. Unfortunately, the Republicans, led by Senator McConnell in the Senate, filibustered the creation of an independent commission to investigate January 6. Fortunately, the House went forward to proceed on its own, on a bipartisan basis to get to the truth. Now, after 11 months and 1,000 interviews, more than 1,000, the bipartisan Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the US Capitol is sharing its findings with America. And the revolution, re, revelations are so damning. In its first two public hearings, the committee has shown that the attack on the Capitol was not a demonstration. The change spontaneously and became a riot. The attack on our nation's capital, the attack on this chamber, was the result of a plan, a violent effort to prevent the peaceful transfer of power from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, to stop the peaceful transition of power in America for the first time in our history. To quote Congresswoman Liz Cheney, The former President Donald Trump, quote, summoned the mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. When the mob beat our police officers and ransacked the Capitol, going through our desks here on the floor, posing for pictures where the presiding officer is now standing, all sorts of things to make them look famous with their friends, at the expense of the integrity of this building and this chamber. They beat the police officers. Donald Trump did nothing to stop them. Nothing. He wouldn't order the National Guard to defend the Capitol, the Senate, the House. He watched the mayhem on TV, rewinding it to watch it over and over again. He gloried in the moment. When the crowd threatened to hang Vice President Pence, Donald Trump said, and the quote, he deserves it. Deserves it. The Vice President of the United States deserves it. His own advisors told him repeatedly that the voter fraud conspiracy theories that he was peddling were false. They were called idiotic, amateurish, detached from reality. Who said that? The former Attorney General serving Donald Trump said it in describing the false claims that President Trump continued to peddle. Donald Trump was told the truth over and over again, and yet he continued to push his deadly big lie. He deliberately, former President of the United States, deliberately undermined America's faith in our election process to overturn the election and to hold on to power no matter what. He used the big lie to make big bucks. We learned that yesterday. Quarter of a million dollars, quarter of a billion dollars in donations, including millions of dollars for an election defense fund that didn't exist. In a coming hearing, the committee will show how Donald Trump pressured the Justice Department into helping him overturn the election. I know a little bit about that. Our Senate Judiciary Committee, which I chair, documented this attempt to subvert the Justice Department in an eight-month investigation and report that we produced last fall. We produced this report in a bipartisan fashion, inviting Republican and Democratic members of the Senate Judiciary Committee to witness the testimony of the key individuals and to ask questions themselves. We interviewed former justice officials like Jeffrey Rosen and Richard Donahue, the then-acting Attorney General and Deputy Attorney General, who resisted Donald Trump's pressure to take over the Justice Department. They told us how repeatedly they informed the former president that his bogus election claims were false. They told us how Trump nevertheless asked the Justice Department to, quote, Just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and Republican congressmen. And they resisted Donald Trump's plan to replace Jeffrey Rosen with the big lie lawyer, Jeffrey Clark, who wanted the Justice Department to help overturn the election. The facts that the Senate Judiciary Committee uncovered are damning. The January 6th Committee will unveil those, many of their own discovery and reporting, and some that we sent to them from our testimony that we gathered in the Senate Judiciary Committee. Mr. President, we came close to losing this democracy in America on January 6th. I believe that by laying out the truth for us and for future generations, the members of the committee are performing a public service of heroic proportions. It is sad. Sad that given an opportunity of a bipartisan commission, just as we had with 9 11, that the Senate Republicans stopped it. Why? It's a question they're going to have to answer. The
0: prevention of child abuse, a main focus during the Craig Collins Show this week. Take a listen.
5: 1470, 100.3 WMBD. It's the Craig Collins Show. Uh, My next guest is going to talk about a tough conversation, uh, but in doing so, uh, we're actually also going to talk about a lot of ways where you can help, where you can get involved, uh, just anything you can do to, to be a part of a solution uh, to what are a lot of rough problems that exist in our society. Uh, her name is Carol Myrna. She is the CEO of the Center for uh, Prevention of Abuse. Uh, welcome to the show, uh, Carol. Thank you for being on.
2: Craig, it's a pleasure to be with you. I appreciate you inviting us.
5: So first, I guess I want to cover the event that's coming up. I know my producer reached out because of the 34th, is it 34th annual duck race that's coming up?
2: Indeed, 34 years strong. We're the oldest running duck race in the country, and uh, we're excited to, to start selling ducks now, and the duck race will be August 27th.
5: I love that there's a countdown on the website, 74 days, 7 hours, 23 <laughs> minutes, and 11, 10 <laughs> seconds uh, until the ducks actually get into the water and start racing. Um, tell me a little bit more about the event for anyone who hasn't gone or it's been a bit since the last time you went. Uh, you said you buy ducks and you try to win.
2: Right, uh, we adopt ducks at $5 a piece and the ducks get assigned to their owner and on August 27th, uh, 30,000 of these ducks, which is what we plan to sell again this year, will race down a thousand foot water slide and the first 15 across that finish line will win some awesome prizes for the people that adopted them for that five bucks. Top prize this year is $10,000 in cash. Wow. Uh, second prize $5,000. Uh, we've got a jewelry package from Breamers. We've got um, three rounds of Cub tickets. We've just got all sorts of fantastic things um, to, to honor those folks that donate uh, and help bring peace uh, to the survivors that we care for at the center. Yeah. Um, and it's $5 a time.
5: So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the work that the Center for Prevention of Abuse does. It's not specific if anyone is listening and thinking, oh is this child abuse, is this domestic abuse? It is anyone that is a victim of abuse. What do you guys do uh, in the process of trying to help someone heal?
2: Well, the first thing is um, if anyone is a survivor and is listening, we we always want to start with saying we believe you and we're here for you. Um, We're here to start the conversation and hopefully help find a pathway to recovery. Um, We're 100% client-centered, and we want to make sure that people get what they need to be able to find that sense of safety and sense of peace. So we're a large agency. Uh, we we have about 125 staff in six different locations, and our our core responsibilities are domestic violence, which is how we started, uh, and sexual assault, also a core responsibility. Human trafficking, elder abuse, abuse of adults living with disabilities, and it just goes on and on. We have a, a very large therapy department with almost a dozen master's level therapists that we care for people, and a, a giant prevention education department that tries to help stop abuse before it starts. One of the key things that I want to say is that everything that we do and what we provide for survivors is 100% free, free of charge, and confidential. Wow.
5: Um, Yeah, obviously incredibly important because help is a necessary component, I think, to to getting over something, to uh, maybe not even getting over being the right word, but uh, moving past, moving on from uh, the pain, the the difficulty that would be uh, going through any kind of abuse in your life. And so if you can't afford it, uh, tremendously important. Uh, if you don't mind, I want to pivot to something that's been in the news uh, the last couple weeks, and we didn't prep for this conversation, and I don't want you to weigh in on whether or not you think Johnny Depp or Amber Heard or anyone is telling the truth. Uh, what I wonder, though, is another conversation that's emerged uh, recently. Um, Amber Heard's legal team has said that this was a major step back for people who are victims of abuse, Uh, And you just said something a moment ago. You said, we believe you uh, as a core component uh, to speaking to the victims of abuse of any kind. One of the biggest challenges in the world of someone who is a victim of abuse is proving it. Uh, And again, just using the context of that conversation that's out there uh, in the world, in pop culture, but not necessarily weighing in on it, uh, what are your opinions of the idea that we have a a nuanced uh, maybe world uh, where doubt, where belief, where all of these things come into the picture so significantly, as they probably always have, uh, in the world of abuse and also, I guess, holding those accountable?
2: Uh, domestic violence and other forms of abuse were far too long um, seen as a lesser offense. Um, it has frequently been treated as a private matter. Um, victims are often sent home from the hospital without intervention. Um, children were left to suffer in silence. So whatever we can do to be client-centered, we're not the court system. We're not law enforcement. We can connect and partner with those folks. But our job is to make sure that we take care of people who come to us because they have been victimized, because they're survivors of abuse. And um, uh, we're always there to listen. We're always there to never judge. Um, It's never to bring doubt to what we're being told. Um, so we're just there to help provide. And I think that provides a sense of comfort to people yes. um, to know that they come and have that conversation. Um, you know, we would never want what used to happen before there was a cultural shift. And there was a cultural shift because um, to people, to come to terms with what was happening to them from an abuse standpoint, many times it was somebody had to die. Um, and and we never want to get to that point. We want to make sure that people have a place to go. Everyone deserves safety. Everyone deserves to live a life of peace.
5: Uh, If there aren't documents from doctors, it becomes your word against another person's word, uh, which is a difficult matter in the world of the the legal um, uh, world of all this. Uh, So I guess I just wanted to reinforce that, and as you stated a second ago, you're not involved. In that part beyond, uh, adding, um, some recommendations on where to go, you're really about healing, uh, those who have been through a difficult time.
2: We do provide orders of protection, um, to, to survivors and we have three orders of protection offices, um, and we do help people with that process, but we never make a judgment call. And truly we've come a long way, but you always run into that, that fear. That sense of, I am the only one, just like you said. But, you know, there are statistics that are just alarming. One in three women, one in four men, will experience domestic violence in their lifetime. Um, One in four victims of human trafficking as a child. So, we could go on and on. Six women will be victims of sexual assault in their lifetime. One in 33 men will experience sexual assault. So, we know that it happens frequently. All too frequently, and it casts a long shadow. Um, we know that they, that abuse like this um, creates deep scars, um, and we want to make sure that the true extent of the pain is recognized, and whatever we can do to help um, find some peace from that, uh, we want to be there for that person.
5: Yeah. And, so, and we
2: are, we serve we serve about six thousand people a year wow. just in Central Illinois. Right? So we know that people know where we're at, but we also know that this is a grossly underreported issue, so that there are many crimes of interpersonal violence that aren't reported. Um, And if even if law enforcement aren't involved, we want people to have that comfort level to know that we're available. And we have a crisis hotline that's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it's somebody in Peoria um, that's going to help you walk through whatever it is you're going through um, and people are welcome to call at
5: any time yeah and just uh, um, I will reiterate again I think it is important for anyone listening uh, that feels as though maybe they're their only one or, or maybe it's somehow their fault that just picking up the phone and making that phone call uh, will hopefully um, start the process of understanding how utterly untrue uh, that um, more often than not a very very in almost every single case uh, true it is that that is not it's not your fault uh, and you are certainly not alone uh in any of this. uh before i let you go just real quick i know there's ways to volunteer for the organization uh and then of course maybe we mention one more time uh the duck race uh but how do people get involved if they want to help out?
2: Well there's a variety of ways. You know word of mouth is is terribly important for us. Everyone knows somebody that's a victim of abuse. So being able to find that comfort level of saying i care about you, uh here's a resource for you whether it's a friend, a neighbor, a colleague um, we want people to have that comfort level to do that. They can reach out to us. They can uh, go to our website for more information about how to get help for somebody else, how to get help for themselves, or just to get an education. Um, we have very serious needs. You know, the increase in gas prices and electric costs and all that, we're not immune from that. So monetary donations, physical donations like food for our food pantries, um, and then most certainly um, buying ducks for the duck race. The duck race is our signature fundraiser, and people can go to duckracepeoria.com, and they can purchase their ducks there, or they can meet us at the – so we hope people visit duckracepeoria.com, take a look at it, get some ducks, and get in the race.
5: Yeah, and then just a couple other things. You mentioned your social media page, facebook.com slash center for prevention of abuse is where you can go to follow a lot of the social media posts there. Uh, You mentioned the crisis hotline, 1-800-559-SAFE. Uh, 1-800-559-7233 to connect with someone from the Center for Prevention of Abuse.
0: That does it for this edition of Week in Review. I'm Cooper Banks from the WNBD Newsroom.